you can't really ever escape it. You don't forget it. The youngest defendant in this case was 11 or 12, right? It never ceases to amaze me the extremes to which really bad people will go. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. I'm your host, Jim Clementi, with my co-host, Francie... Hakes. Of course. (laughs) Hi, Jim. How are you? Suddenly you've forgotten my name. It's that argument we had earlier, right? I thought maybe it was just your turn to say your last name. (laughs) Excellent. So... And with us today is your friend and colleague from back in the days when you were a state prosecutor, Mary Finlayson. Very good. Nice pronunciation. How are you, Mary? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Well, we really appreciate not only all the work you did, but telling us about some of these cases that kind of span the spectrum of your career. And today we're going to be talking about your worst case. Yeah, and I think we should maybe warn the audience a little bit, the listeners here on this case. I'm familiar with the facts that Mary's going to be talking about today. And when we call this a worst case, it really is a worst case. So some of the details might be, well, will be disturbing to a great many people. So just fair warning. All right. So let's try not to be too graphic about it, but um, still at least... Give us the nature of this case. What kind of crime was this? This was a rape crime of a 13-year-old mentally handicapped girl who had the mind um, of about a six-year-old girl. Wow. Yeah, another another very disturbing case. How did the case come to your attention? Well, the girl had gone off riding her bicycle and was gone but didn't come home when, when expected by the mother and was out all night. So the mother called the police. Um and once they realized, you know, they had a young girl that was missing and mentally handicapped, they contacted me and I was on call at the time. I had to respond to the case at that time. And one of the things that I think might interest our listeners is I know that during my career when when you're working crimes against children in particular and missing kids and abducted kids, that there's never any uh, lack of motivation. In other words... 
you never have even a moment of hesitation when you realize that a kid is in danger. Is that what you experienced? Absolutely. You know, you get cooperation from everyone around where, as you know, sometimes it's not so easy to get different law enforcement to cooperate with each other. But when it's involving, a, you know, a child missing, everybody seems to come together. Well, that's one good thing then. So what was the first response that you did when you got this case? We went out looking for this girl. Um, she was last known to be hanging around at Forest Creek um, Apartments um, in Marietta. They since changed their name, but the girl ended up showing up at home while we were out looking for her. And the mother quickly realized from looking at you know her daughter that she had been attacked. Um, so she had to be taken to the hospital um, where we learned that she had been repeatedly raped and sodomized over a period of what we expect was probably about 14 hours. Does that sound right, Francie? Yes. Unfortunately, Mary still has not given you the worst details of this case, and that involves uh, what she's going to talk about as they built the investigation. But could you tell us a little bit, Mary, you said that the mother knew immediately looking at her daughter that she'd been attacked. Why was that? One of the things was she had stains um, on her clothing that turned out to be what was identified by the crime lab as a hundred different semen stains on her clothing. So did you respond to the hospital to talk to her first, Mary? I did talk to her, and then we later, you know, of course, did a videotaped interview, too, where she was able to fortunately tell me about the first individual that had lured her into his apartment. Um, where he had brought three other young men in there, and you know they had proceeded to force her to perform oral sex on them and um, raped her in that apartment. And I don't know if you remember this, Francie, but you know they videotaped a lot of this activity, and on that videotape they called it that they were going to get a two. And I remember that videotape; it was uh, absolutely horrifying. I had to watch it because I was the prosecutor who caught the case, and I had to watch it, and it will always live with me because it is, I think the most horrifying thing to me about this case, Mary, was the absolute callousness with, or that they treated her, the way that they treated her was so callous, and they were uh, joking and laughing, and it was, it was horrifying. It was, it was one of the worst things I've ever seen on a video. And that videotape would be child pornography that they manufactured. They did. And they had, fortunately for us, you know, they had documented their crime. So, you know, we got a lot of evidence from that. But they took this girl from his apartment where there were four men that had assaulted her and took her into an abandoned apartment in that complex where they put her in a closet in that abandoned apartment and basically just kind of went out on a call to this person, that person, calling and texting their friends and going out and finding other friends that wanted to have sex with this girl and bring them in, and they would go in and have sex with her in the closet. It just went on over and over and over again? Over and over. We believed at least 25 different men that we could identify. Some of them were juveniles, but some of them were older men, and... We, I think, identified, I want to say, 22 suspects eventually, and that was just through, you know, good investigative work. We knew we had DNA samples, but we didn't have matches. 
So one of the interesting things or one of the scary things, I think, about this case and that people don't understand um, watching shows that show, you know, such advanced technology and such advanced science like Jim works on criminal minds. But in our case, especially back then in the early 2000s and even today, when you're talking about limited resources, you mentioned that the child had uh, at least 100 semen stains on her clothing. If I remember correctly, Mary, the crime lab refused to, because of resource issues, they refused to test absolutely every stain. Don't I remember that right? That seemed to recall that that's what happened because there were a lot of them that they said were I forget the word, <laughs> but they were mixed. Right. Yeah, that, so, that's the word, mixed. Know, the technology, yeah, so the technology needed to, you know, go through in the man hours to try to isolate all of those stains. You know, we got pushback on them from doing it. So, But we did have, I believe, 25 DNA samples that they, you know, isolated for us to compare to. Yeah, and I've always wondered, Mary, I think one of the things that haunts me a little bit about this case is that I've always wondered whether there were, I mean, we always sort of felt that there could be others that we did not catch. And some of that was because of a failure of the science. But please tell me that those 22 suspects were all tried and prosecuted, please. Yeah, well, they were all arrested. um, And luckily, we found the one, you know, the four men. And then through doing interviews with each one, they'd give us a name. We, you know how that goes. You go out and get another name. And we got search warrants for DNA on all of them. Mm. And luckily, we got matches. Wow. So all of them were charged. And later, all of them pled guilty. Wow, that's that's amazing. But I'm sure that's after a lot of legwork and a lot of ups and downs in between. But before we get to that, you mentioned something about when they were going to do this tape. They were going to do a what? I didn't quite catch what you called it. Yeah, they. it's just something I'll never forget that they kept saying on this video that I'm going to get a chewing. So that's what they called it when they were going to force her to perform oral sex on them is a chewing. A chewing. Oh. Uh, like that's, that was the, their slang. Like chewing. Mm-hmm. That was their slang for it oral was. sex. Yeah. Mary, I'm, of course, I'll, I'm like you, I'll never forget this videotape. And I think part of the reason is because we also had to um, allow the defense attorneys in the case to see the videotape. So we, you know, we had to watch it ourselves so many times as they came into the DA's office, one after the other after the other, to watch the video. We had to see it so many times that just the overall lightheartedness, uh, the child was almost like she was catatonic some of the time, just complying with their demands, their shoving and pushing, um, and they're laughing and talking as she is basically, well, is a prisoner in a closet for hours. Yes, she was. And it was, it was terrible. But they were using condoms. I don't know if you remember that, but when we went to the crime scene, there were condoms all over the apartment that were used and full of semen. I remember the pictures. Around all over the place. Yeah. But they were just, it was it was like a big party, and there was no remorse. Everyone was laughing while they were in there videoing it, um, you know, while one's having sex with her, the other one's videoing and making fun and laughing. And this little girl, oh, you have to remember, even though she had the body of a 13-year-old, so she was somewhat developed, but she had the mental capacity of a 6-year-old little girl, you know, just very agreeable and compliant, but, you know, not knowing what to do. So it was a terrible, terrible case. 
It was a terrible case. And the age range, correct me if I'm wrong, Mary, the youngest defendant in this case was 11 or 12, right? What? He was 12 years old. And, and the he oldest. Was brought there by an older cousin, I believe it was, went and got the 12 year old and brought him in to have sex with the 13 year old. Right. So his first sexual experience, I think, was assaulting a a mentally disabled child. That one, I believe, Mary, we felt like we should take him to juvenile court. We did not prosecute him as an adult, right? Right. He was charged through juvenile court, and I think that was appropriate. But the oldest man was 28, 30, something like that, if I remember correctly. I was thinking about this last night, and I remember there was a 42-year-old man involved in this situation that we knew, I believe, it had sex with her, but we didn't have a DNA sample right. on him. Right. Um. But, you know, you have ages from the age, I know, from 12 to 42 years old, these men. And like you said, with all the different stains, I definitely believe that there were many more people that had sex with her that we don't know about. Well, I'd like to get into a little bit of how this case affected you, um, each of you, actually, and the community. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that. You know, all of these cases, you know, as you know from your careers, like, you have to be able to be exposed to this kind of thing to where, you know, you just try not to be affected by it. But when you're dealing with, you know, a girl that young that's disabled, I mean, it's just, you know, it's really sad um, but it also was very motivating because you work hard trying to catch the people that did it. The community, you know, there were a lot of people that the news media interviewed after this had happened. And there had been phone calls from residents in nearby apartments who kept hearing noises from that vacant apartment. But their security and the apartment management never responded. And so that was one of the tragedies of this case is that there were some people, because this was not in a very good area of town. There were some people who did try to reach out and get help because they knew something was happening, but the, the apartment complex failed to do their duty, so no security responded. They didn't even call the police. Wow, that's horrible. I mean, it's just, I hate when I hear things like that. And Mary, obviously this case affects you uh, even today. I'm sure you think about it occasionally. How do you... I certainly have struggled with this. How do you deal every day with having the images from the video, um, the child's face? How do you deal with having those things in your head and then go about your normal life? You know, I honestly don't think that people um, like you guys and me and all the hundreds and thousands of other people out there that do this kind of work, you know, you just you can't really ever escape it. You don't forget it. Um, you know, my husband always tells me that, you know, after all that time in there, you're affected by it and you're, you're never going to be the same. But you just have to, you know, hang on that you're doing good and you're out there fighting to try to hold these people accountable to seek justice for victims. So that's kind of what I try to think about. But you never really can get, you know, those images pop up in your mind and you never really can get away from it. But you just have to kind of put it in a box is what I call it. <laughs> No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think what you said earlier about how it's horrifying and difficult to deal with, but it's motivating at the same time. 
was certainly always true for me. And I remember in this case, Mary, I don't know if you remember, we tried to argue to the court kind of a novel uh, approach because the child's mental age was below the age of 10. In Georgia, the rape statutes carried different penalties if the child was under the age of 10. So one of the first battles we fought in this case was a battle right with the trial judge for the right to charge the these defendants with that particular crime of rape of a child under 10. And I don't know if you remember, but I lost that. And of course, the courts have long held that age in statutes means chronological age, not mental age. But I've always thought that that was, uh, uh, that that was wrong. I do too. I agree totally. And I do remember that decision. And I don't agree with it, but, you know, we have to follow the law. No, and I'm like you. I just try to put it, like Jim asked, you know, how you deal with it. I just try to put it in a box. I don't know that I'm successful. And I think that, um, you know, we were talking uh, in some of the other guests that we interviewed, we were talking to someone else from the local neighborhood about a, a local area in Atlanta about a case she did where she responded and there was a child bound on a porch when she responded. And she said she immediately, things slowed down. Her hands started to shake. It was obviously a, you know, a, a stress response, adrenaline. What's really uh, difficult, I think, in dealing with these cases even today is that just talking about them today, I'm a little bit sweaty. My hands are shaking a little bit. I mean, I think it's like that secondary trauma. I think you don't really quite ever get over what you've had to see or, or hear. I think that's true for all of law enforcement, you know, that experiences anything like this and other cases that traumatize them at the time. But, you know, you just can't, you can't ever get away from it because you're always going to have the memories, you know, so you're always going to, I think we're all affected by it. You know, there's no, no real way not to be. I take solace in knowing that I was doing good and trying to seek justice for victims and as long as I did something there to help them and to also put the person away that, you know, did this horrible thing to a child, then it kind of equalizes out the bad things that you have to deal with, you know, as you're thinking about these things as time goes by. I don't think you get over it, though. You don't ever forget it. You really don't. And I think, Mary, that's one of the reasons why I wanted uh, you to call in so we could talk to you about best case, worst case, because you're one of the best detectives I ever knew, ever worked with, ever even heard about. And this case was such a tribute to you and the work of the Cobb County Police Department, because it, you know, while there was videotape, it wasn't like they sat with the videotape and a searchlight on their faces. I mean, it was this was a challenging case to put together. There was difficult DNA evidence a victim who was mentally disabled. There was in no way was this ever going to be a a slam dunk. And 22 sex offenders pled guilty. None of them even rolled the dice because Mary put together such a strong case. And so while this is maybe a worst case for both of us, it was also a best case because it's really a shining example of what law enforcement does best. And that is put their heads down, find the evidence, and put the bad guys away. And that's what happened here. Wow. Well, Mary, is there anything that you do to sort of balance out the negative of all these, this type of case, all this kind of death and destruction that you had to work in? 
one thing I think was important was exercise. So me and the other detectives would always run together, you know, before work or after. I think that was really one of the things that saved me. But, and I hope I'm allowed to say this, but I believe that my belief in God was what helped me because I just feel somehow that I was protected somehow because, you know, I could see things and interview children and, but then I go home to my children and my husband and still live a happy life. And, you know, not take that stuff home with me. And I know that's not the case with a lot of people. So I always said that, you know, God just just protected me um, so that I was able to do this work, but also live a life that was happy. Well, that's good. Well, we really appreciate you coming on Best Case, Worst Case and talking about this worst case. Uh, really extremely disturbing case. It's It never ceases to amaze me the kinds of extremes to which people, some people, some really bad people will go to do horrible things to vulnerable other people. Uh, It probably shouldn't surprise me after all the cases I've seen and heard about, but just what they'll do to children is just, it's mind-boggling to me. It is, but I think that we, you know, while this is just a very disturbing topic and a very distressing case, I think there are, like you said, Jim, the worst cases can still provide lessons. And here, the lesson is that there are law enforcement, there are community members who are doing the right thing day in and day out, and through training and perseverance, are seeking and getting justice for victims. And that's what it's all about. It is. And we want to thank you, Mary, for the work you do and for coming on Best Case, Worst Case. Thank you. Francie, I know that since this was also one of your cases, that this case affected you very deeply. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, Jim, this was this was definitely one of my worst cases, if not maybe my worst case ever. I mean, I can think of only maybe one or two in almost 20 years that affected me anywhere near as much as this one did. And I think mostly it was because the child was so helpless, so taken advantage of. And we all heard what Mary said about the ordeal that she went through. And I think what bothers me the most, I still get really emotional when I'm thinking about it, when I talk about this case. I think what bothered me the most is that they treated her like she wasn't even human. Yeah. That's what was hard to bear about it. I know. And I have to say, Francie, I've been working in the area of sex crimes for over 30 years. And I have never heard of a case of child sexual victimization that was this extreme, that there were so many just incredibly asinine human beings who would take advantage of a girl who had the mental capacity of a five or six-year-old. The fact that even if she were a 13-year-old of normal functioning, that that many guys, men mostly and boys, could line up and take advantage of her. It's it's mind-boggling. That well, it was like people... they sent out they like sent out a signal almost. Come on, you're not going to believe we have. It. I mean, it was hours and hours this went on. Right, and I bet that. What we didn't hear was the, you know, how they advertised, 
how they got these guys to come in and what they told these guys. And then when these guys saw that it was a helpless 13-year-old girl who who really didn't know what was going on, and she'd been already extremely badly abused, and they kept coming and coming and coming. They kept doing this. It's just outrageous. I know. You know, you, you're tempted to say something like, well, animals, but of course animals don't do that as far as we're aware. Right. And it's it's so savage. I think that's a better word for it. It's just so savage that they would stick her in, a, in the dark and just send them in one after another, sometimes two and three of them. And part of the reason it sticks in my mind, of course, was having to watch that, the, the video that those some of those morons took of the incident. And it's, it's like child pornography burned in my brain. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really ever go away. And I think it's, you know, some of our listeners write in and they call me, you know, sort of Attila the Hun and I'm, I'm so tough on crime, or maybe they think I'm unreasonable, but it's cases like this that really formed uh, my sense of justice because this happened fairly early in my career as a state prosecutor and it really really profoundly impacted me not just as a prosecutor but as a person i agree and i think that's one of the things if people call you that they don't understand the purpose of this podcast is so they will understand better what actually happens when you work these cases time after time after time year after year decade after decade and we both have. And the fact is that you do see the very worst that humans do to other humans. And it's, it's horrific. But it has to have an effect on you. The thing is, it just makes you very strident in your purpose. You definitely want to stop this from happening in the future and to punish the people who do it because you're standing in for the victim. They can't speak for themselves. They can't prosecute a case for themselves. That's what prosecutors do. They stand up for the people who are victimized by people who are just horrendous. Well, and I was enormously proud to stand up for this child and for all the other victims of sexual abuse and assault that I stood up for in my career. And another reason I think this was one of my, if not the worst case of my career was as we said, knowing that there, or believing that there are some out there who sexually abuse this child so horrifically, and we were never able to catch. Yeah, well, I mean, you got 22 prosecutions out of this? Yeah, it was a lot. And they said there, there we was- We think there were at least four or five more that we weren't able to catch. And part of that was the science. We already talked about that with Mary, the DNA, the issues, uh, just resources and other cases and demands for murder cases, for example. And so it, it's all very frustrating. And that's why I'm so grateful to be doing this podcast with you, Jim, because not only are we taking people behind police lines and giving them insider secrets about sort of how the cases impact people, but we're talking about what's real. It's not what's on TV. You know, right. it's not pre-crime minority report technology where you can just throw up one of those glue tents over every crime scene in every tiny jurisdiction in the country. It just doesn't happen. No. Sometimes the bad guy doesn't get caught. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, if you look at the homicide solution rates in this country, and those are based only on closing the case, making an arrest, not an ultimate conviction. But if you look at those rates, they're woefully low. And that's the most 
extreme crime. And so if that crime has only a 50 to 60% solution rate in this country, then look at sex crimes when they only have a reporting rate in the single digits. And of those, the ones that are actually fully prosecuted and convicted are a fraction of 1% of the crimes that are committed. So in this particular area, you really should be commended for the fact that in this case, you got over 20 convictions against just a heinous group of people who I have to, I have to hope that this is mob mentality. In other words, that any one of these individuals wouldn't have done this. But the fact that their friends or relatives are egging them on and saying, come on, we all did it, you do it too. Um, I think that may have played a part. Not that it excuses anything. Of course not. But I just want to wrap my mind around how you get this many men and boys to do such a horrific thing to one girl. I don't know, Jim. I don't think I'll ever understand it. And Mary certainly didn't understand it. And I'm really grateful to her for coming on and talking to us and reliving this case again for her, which just like me still continues to haunt her. And I suspect may very well haunt some of our listeners. Yeah. Well, this case may trigger people because some of the things that we discussed are disgusting and this whole case is disgusting. And because of that, you may have some secondary or tertiary trauma from it. And you have to take care of yourself. You have to talk to somebody if that's something that you're feeling. You have to do something to sort of balance that out. You know, go out and work out or listen to some nice music or do something to balance out that horrible feeling. Eat chocolate. Eat chocolate. Or one of those mug cakes that you make, Francie. <laughs> that's right. Yes. But, you know, there are resources for people. If you if you need to call a hotline, we'll have the number on at the end of this show. And hopefully this will be a learning lesson that will not haunt you, but will help you to understand why the job of an investigator, the job of a prosecutor is so important. And really, there are no words to describe how difficult it is day in and day out doing this kind of a job when you're just exposed to this horrific kind of behavior. You know, it's become so trite, but when you're exposed to what is truly man's inhumanity to man, Mm. um, it, it really is hard to forget. It's hard to get over. And when it comes at you so fast and furious, especially as a state prosecutor, you know, you have dozens, hundreds of cases yeah. in your files. It's really difficult to take. So I just, my my heart goes out and my hat is off to all our former and current colleagues mm-hmm. around the country and around the world who listen and who investigate and prosecute these kind of cases for a living. We have so much respect for you. And I say to my law enforcement audiences, whenever I teach and train, if no one has thanked you today, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Well, I'll join in that. Uh, I want to thank you too. And obviously, we are 
very proud of the fact that we had opportunities to serve the public as prosecutors and, and me also as an investigator for years. Not that every one of the people in that job are perfect. Of course not. But by far, the vast majority of them are dedicated servants who want to bring justice for the victims. And they do a great job of it. They really do. Now we're signing off from Best Case, Worst Case. Thank you for listening. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Stories about child sexual abuse can make us feel powerless, but the good news is that there are organizations working to prevent abuse and keep kids safe. Darkness to Light and their Stewards of Children Prevention Training has trained more than 1.4 million adults to protect, recognize, and react responsibly to child sexual abuse. But there's more work to do, and with their 4 million by 2020 goal, Darkness to Light is setting their sights on training 4 million adults around the country to keep kids safe. By donating to Darkness to Light, you can help reach this goal that will make communities across the country safer places for kids. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org today to give. That's www.d2l.org.